Welcome to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. Shep will talk with some of the smartest thinkers in business to help make you more successful in your professional and personal life. This is Amazing Business Radio with Shep Hyken. Hello, everybody. It's Shep Hyken here. We're back with another episode of Amazing Business Radio. This week, we have been, oh, we're so lucky and so fortunate. Stephen Van Bellingham is going to be here. And we are going to be talking about his new book, A Diamond in the Rough. It is a fantastic book. You'll learn about what a diamond in the rough means in just a few moments before we get into the interview. A quick announcement. If you've got an amazing story that you'd like to share or a question that you have, please reach out to me on any of the social media channels. I am pretty much everywhere. If it is a question, use the hashtag Ask Shep. I'll answer the question right there in the social channel on this show in my newsletter, The Shepherd Letter, or on my TV show, Be Amazing or Go Home, which can be found on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Prime. And you can go to beamazing.tv. That's beamazing.tv and catch all the episodes. All right. It's time for another amazing interview. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Shep. Thanks for having me. So, so excited. Book number six. And is this your third time on the show? At least, I would think. No, I, I, I think it's my my second time. Yeah, yeah I, your second I think time. we talked three times, three years ago when my previous book came out. Right. The offer you can't refuse. And now I'm happy to be back. Yeah. And uh, and that's, by the way, I love that. Those, I'm happy to be back. My latest book is I'll Be Back. Yes, uh, but your latest book is A Diamond in the Rough. And I, first of all... Um, I mean, everybody should know this. I'm a huge fan. Uh, mm-hmm. You and I spoke together uh, at Disney in France, in Paris. I think that's where we first met. That's where we first met, yes. Yep. And and I got to tell you what, you blew me away. I'm not just <laughs> saying that. Uh, I honestly think that if I was in your part of the world, because you live where in Europe? In Belgium. I live in Belgium. Belgium. You and I would be like direct competitors going at each <laughs> other's throats. But I'm glad you're over there and not here. <laughs> we each have our part of the world where we, we can spread have, the every message. Every once in a while, yeah. I sneak over there. Actually, I worked with a great candy company out of Belgium, Barry Colabelt, with the oh, largest uh, yeah, I know them very chocolate well. manufacturer in the world. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and Belgian chocolate is world famous, of course. So of good course that you helped them out. Yeah, Some of the best. I, I didn't actually get to Belgium, but I did get to Switzerland and uh, yeah. Barcelona with them last year. Oh, okay. So. Uh, nice locations, but uh, it was it was fun. Anyway, a diamond in the rough, and and let's talk about that's the title of the book. Mm-hmm. And in addition to the book, there's a workbook that goes with it, so you can actually operationalize the information. But your definition of a diamond in the rough, and and I'll go ahead and explain it in my words, and you can expand on it. Is pretty much every company that's not already recognized for an amazing customer experience is usually a diamond in the rough because their intentions are to become a great world-class service experience type company, but they're maybe going about it the wrong way. They have the potential, hence a diamond in the rough. Now, there are some companies we just can't. They're cubic zirconia, and they never <laughs> will be any better than that. that. That's my take on it, not yours. But did I uh, did I describe it well? Yeah, that was perfect. I, and I think, Shep, it's something that we that we see a lot. You know, you get invited to an organization and they have this beautiful PowerPoint presentation about how customer obsessed they are, how how it's going to be the year of the customer. And usually in Q1 of the year, it's the year of the customer. And then by the time the year evolves, 
you know, and by the Didn't time we have that you're a theme Q4, at the beginning of this year about yeah, the customer, what was it? And now it's squeezing costs, and you know, let's find some some money in December to to achieve our targets, and everyone has forgotten about the customer. So it's it's exactly like you described it. Most companies have the desire to be customer centric and to be world class. Most of them don't succeed or are average in the execution. So they have the potential, but most of them stay a diamond in the rough. And and the goal of this book is actually to help those diamonds in the rough to transform themselves in beautiful, shiny diamonds. Right, right. I, and I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. And so, well, let's jump into it. I actually, you're, uh, and by the way, throughout, I, I got the book and it, it's already highlighted. <laughs> There's multiple highlights in yellow throughout the book. Uh, this is an audio podcast, right? Because somebody might see it uh, if we we have some. Uh, <laughs> there it is. Highlight. I did not highlight that. It came highlighted. And I thought to myself, <laughs> did Stephen send the book and, and highlight all the important parts for me to look at? <laughs> no, it's there in every book for you to look at. <laughs> but um, so I love, by, by the way, I was going to go to a particular page uh, that 80% of CEOs uh, think their company is a customer-centric company. However, and this is really amazing, only 8% of customers agree. That is a huge it's gap. incredible. Yeah. So we think we're doing a great job, guys. Go out there and keep doing it. Well, our customers think differently. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's exactly this. And, and, you know, the question that I get most often after giving a talk uh, about customer strategies and customer service is, is like, yeah, Stephen, we understand, we we want to do this, but how do we start? How can we transform ourselves? So the how question kept coming back and back and back. So that's why I decided to write this book, which is a more practical book. This is the most personal and practical book I have ever written. Um, it's very easy. There's no big new theories, but in my opinion, it's a book that as a manager, as the, the moment you've read it, the, the two minutes after that, you can change your behavior and become more customer centric without increasing your budgets, without spending more time, just you know, doing the right thing for customers. It it most of the time it just requires a change of mindset more than right. any big strategic new project. Well, I still believe that if you don't do it the right way, uh, it's fo- it's rooted in the culture and somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk a lot about the culture uh, in the book and and. I'm going to try to find the page, but I don't need to do that now. But somewhere it, it basically says you've got to ingrain this in the culture. So first of all, I'm going to ask you this. What's the first thing? But before I do that, um, I believe it starts at the top with leadership deciding, just like you mentioned. And mm-hmm. then they decide to do it. Somebody's in charge of it. They put together their budgets. They make this big presentation. It takes more than just deciding to do it. But right. once you decide you want to do it, what is the true first step? Well, I, I think I, I agree with you, Shep, that leadership is where it should start. And the biggest barrier that I see why companies don't succeed in their ambition um, is because the teams don't believe their leaders. And it sometimes leaders overestimate the impact of a beautiful PowerPoint presentation at a, at a fantastic event. What I see is that the impact of micro decisions, the impact of micro communication is is much higher. Uh, It's the small sentences that you say or don't say to your team. It's the small day-to-day decisions where you each time you have the choice, will I choose in favor of the customer or will I choose in favor of my own organization? Every single one of those micro decisions and micro communication leads to belief or disbelief of the team. And this is something that, in my opinion, is hugely underestimated that, you know, it's it's like 
you know stories like this, Shep, where an employee does something fantastic for a customer, they invest a little bit of time in it, maybe they financially compensate the client a little bit, and then they get this email back with, with a client that is super excited, super happy, and, and thanking that person for, for great service. So that person is proud, he or she shares that in the organization, at the end of the day, the CEO gets, gets the word of that, that person decides to go to that specific employee and says, well... I, I just heard about this great service um, that you delivered. So congratulations on that. And very well done. This is what we need. Just one little thing. Just be careful with the financial compensation next time because, hey, you understand, we cannot do this for everyone. But, you know, we just pull the rug out from under their feet. Yeah. Very well done. It's never going to happen again after it's that. It's never going it? to happen again. The CEO yeah. leaves and thinks, oh, I gave like five compliments. So I did a good job. And that person thinks, well, they're mad at me. So I'm I'm never going to do that again. And the impact of that one sentence is much higher than the impact of beautiful PowerPoint presentation at an event. So we have a client over uh, in, in actually Middle East Europe and Africa. Mm -hmm. And we suggested that they be a little bit more liberal with giving a credit uh they're in the financial services world and when there's a problem a mistake an argument a complaint whatever they can give a small credit and reverse a charge or whatever mm -hmm. so as an experiment they empowered everybody to do so and at the end of the i don't know if it was three months or six months but it was a substantial amount of time uh, the COO and the person in charge of the customer experience program was shocked at how little they gave away when they mm -hmm. were given permission to do so. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's like the famous $2,000 rule that you also use from Ritz-Carlton. Yep, Ritz yep. I, I met other companies like software companies who have a $100 rule. What, what I've learned that sometimes even if CEOs install that, like giving their employees the empowerment to, to you know, to, reward people or surprise them or compensate them that still every single day you need to motivate people to do it. And every single day you need to reassure them that it's a good thing and that yep. you're still supporting that. Otherwise you may have this rule. You once communicated it and, and no one ever uses it. So it's, it's not just the rules. It's the communication and showing support day in, day out that will actually lead to a change in behavior. So the way that works is, and, and I have in my book, uh, amaze every customer every time I focus on one retailer throughout the whole book is it's not a book about them. It's they're just a major case study. And one of the owners of an ACE hardware store, and they're all dealers that are owned by individual owners throughout the world. They, they're in like 70 different countries uh, said, we have something we call the $5 lifeboat. This is the $2,000 Ritz Carlton version <laughs> at a hardware store. It's five dollars. And what is that? Lifetime mean? value of customers may be a little bit lower there. Right, well. right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But that's <laughs> but the point is this is what the owner told me. And I interviewed him. He says, I I showed everybody what this means. Person comes in, they have a key, uh, they need duplicated. It costs like a dollar sixty for the key. Ah, don't worry about it. Really? Yeah. That's the five dollar lifeboat. Doing a little bit mm -hmm. of something extra. But what the uh, so two things happen. Number one, the owner found that employees stopped coming to him for all kinds of little nickel and dime type problems that they would handle it with the five dollar lifeboat. Mm -hmm. But the owner also required on a weekly meeting, they had their, for lack of a better term, Monday morning huddle or whatever day it was, that anytime the five dollar lifeboat was used, it was to be shared at that meeting. And to your point, the owner even if they used it the wrong way, 
complimented that person in front of everybody and somehow managed to show that this was the right thing to do. We also do an exercise in our training programs. uh, And I'll uh, imagine that you're the CEO of the company or the president of the company. And and we call the exercise in what would Steven do? And Mm -hmm. so we create these scenarios and we make them really hard. And we have teams work together in groups to solve and, and how would they handle this customer issue? And then the CEO's up on stage, that would be you, listens to each one of these. And then at the end, they say, so Stephen, what would you do? And <laughs> and you get to- That's great. That's I would do cool. exactly that. Or, you know, that's a great idea. I might look at it this way, but the goal is not to make anybody feel like they're wrong, but the goal is to learn eventually how to think that way. Yeah, I love that. I love yeah. that. So it's very powerful. Why don't we take a quick break? And when we come back, let's dive into what you think some of the top takeaways of the book are. We don't want to, by the way, your books, I would have to say at the top of the book, it says over 100 specific tips to build a strong customer culture. So we're only going to give you three or four listeners (laughs) out there, but, but here's the thing. Every one of Stephen's books are amazing. And I don't just say that. I mean, I'm I'm gushing over you a little bit because really, truly, (laughs) I have a lot of peers and friends. And I think you have some of the best material in the whole customer experience world. Uh, And everybody needs to be listening to what you say and reading what you write. So thank you very much. That's very kind. Uh, thanks. Let's take a quick break. And, and by the way, again, the name of the book is A Diamond in the Rough. Stephen Van Bellingham is the author, and we're coming right back. Don't go away. One of my favorite sayings is that customer service isn't a department. It's a philosophy. And it's a philosophy that must be embraced by everyone in the organization all the time, and that's 24-7. So if customer service is important to you, and I know it is, then you will love our virtual training, the ultimate on-demand customer service and experience training program that you can access anytime, anywhere. Now, the course content applies to everyone, regardless of position and responsibility, from senior executives to the most recently hired and everyone in between. You'll discover tips, ideas, and strategies that won't cost your company a fortune, but will produce what I call moments of magic, those positive experiences, and it will happen at every level of your organization. So go to Customer Service VT. That's V as in virtual, T as in training. That's CustomerServiceVT.com. It's time to get customer focused. You're listening to Amazing Business Radio with best-selling author and customer service and business expert, Shep Hyken. We are back on Amazing Business Radio talking with Stephen Van Bellingham, and we are talking about his book, A Diamond in the Rough. Number six, all books are great. This is his latest. Let's talk a little bit, uh, I think it's in chapter four, Effective Empathy. Uh, this is a concept you have, and you said this is one that resonates with quite a few of the readers. It does. It does. Because, you know, every presentation that you go to that is about customer experience talks about empathy. Um, but what I've felt with my clients is that that's a very vague term um, in the business world. People don't really know how to act upon it. So I try to make it more practical. So I, I started to work with this term effective empathy, which is very simple. It combines two things. It combines fast feedback loops where you get data and information from the market, from your customers, with fast action loops. And shiny diamonds know how to combine that. What I see is that diamonds in the rough, they usually have MPS trackers or customer satisfaction trackers. They gather the data, but then they start to play what I call manager, playing manager. You know what I mean with that? Like, 
They, they take six months to come up with conclusions and then they have three strategic buckets and four projects per bucket. And the first nine months, nothing happens with the data. And that internally- It's almost too that late it's, at that point. It, it's too late. It's not important. It's not a priority. And the market is like, okay, my feedback doesn't matter. What if you turn that around and you combine fast feedback with fast action? The trick to do that is to keep it small. Uh, I'm a big believer that you can have a bigger impact with your customers if you start with 20 or 30 small improvements rather than this one large strategic project. Um, it gives you the ability to move fast, which shows your team internally that you're doing things. It, it creates a, a feeling of success. Um, people have the feeling that they're achieving things, that things are actually moving. And the market is also super, super happy with all these minor changes. I, I actually learned this concept from the guys at the hotel in Dubai, the Atlantis de Palm Hotel, which is like oh, a very yeah. iconic hotel. Beautiful. Beautiful place. Um, amazing customer service. And they, they have about 18,000 employees. So 18,000? 18,000 employees. And I, I, I was there to work with them just after COVID. So 75% of those people were brand new in the organization. But the service was impeccable. So I, I talked to their CEO and asked him, how, how does this work? And of course, they do a lot of small things. But one of the things that I will never forget is that he told me that they have this CX ritual, customer experience ritual. Every day, he starts his day with, with the five or six key people from his hotel. And it's a very pragmatic meeting. So they look at the questions that came in from guests that are staying in the hotel the day before. And they look for questions that could be valuable for other guests, but where they don't have a fixed process for in place. And if they find those questions that bring value, but they don't have a procedure for it, well, that same day, they will start a new process to make sure that they can help guests with a similar question as from that day and they do that day in day out so you can imagine the amount of improvements that they have after a month after two months and i, I started doing re i started to do research on this and i saw that a lot of companies that are successful with effective em empathy have a ritual like this they have this customer council or they have a customer group most of them don't come together every day but most of them are like we're going to come together every four weeks every six weeks and we take like three small projects that we want to improve and, and it has to be finished by the next meeting and they create like a circle of success. And, and this is part of building this customer culture. It brings impact internally and externally, keeping it small, combining fast feedback with fast action loops. Now, it, I and I love that and I agree a hundred percent. However, there also are opportunities to make big changes. And I tell you what's going on in my mind. I'm mm -hmm. imagining I'm going to dinner and we have several appetizers and then we have a main course. Right. But these appetizers often are better than the main course. That's but true. you have to I have agree. a main course, yeah. right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and then That's dessert, true. of course. Oh my gosh. So those are small plates. <laughs> and that's yeah. what these are. You're serving up a bunch of little um improvements. One of my uh, clients uh, over in Australia, a uh, major manufacturer of automobiles, uh, they uh, had what they call their 1% um, I, I, it was based on 1%. I can't remember the exact terminology they used, but the idea was, let's not try to make huge improvements. Let's just try to look for opportunities to improve by 1%. And after a while, and you added up all the 1% changes they made, it was over a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, I'm a, I'm a big believer in it because I, I see even, maybe it's even more important internally because I see a lot of, 
teams that get disappointed that it takes so long before they actually achieve something. And if you can create a rhythm that every month yep. or every two weeks you have a, a small improvement, it creates a foundation on which you can build big strategic changes. Love it. Uh, and, and I agree with you. You have to do those major projects as well. But usually they work better if you already had a few appetizers and you're already in the mood to go to the to the main course. Yep. Yep. And, and then that one can be big. And by the way, I just received a, an email probably uh if not may have been yesterday or it came in the day before late at night. And the and the client was saying we need a keynote speaker because we need to change our customer service culture. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm happy to do your keynote speech, but my friends, that will not change the culture. It won't. <laughs> it's a little bit more than me up there for 45 minutes or an hour. I may yeah. get it started and we may give them some ideas. But isn't, do you find with some of your clients that they think, hey, let's just bring you in for a day or have you come in and do a speech and everything's going to be beautiful after that? Yeah, it's it sometimes happens. And it's, it's or the question, can you help me to convince my team it's important? And then I always think if you have to convince people, it means they don't believe it. It means that they don't believe you. And yeah. I, I can come in and maybe they will believe me. But when I'm gone, they still won't believe you. Right. So it, it's it's the micro communication, micro decision making again. Yeah. And, and showing the little things moving forward. Yeah. I just had a yeah. client the other day uh, right before I did the speech. Uh, I was on stage. She goes, would you mind? Uh, we, we had to let somebody go. And a few of our employees are really mad at it. They're lashing out against us and actually talking bad about us to other employees. Can you talk about that? I go, whoa, <laughs> uh, I think he got a bigger problem than me. I, I, and by the way, I'm not sure I'm the guy that should be talking about it. But hey, let's jump to another really important part of the book. Uh, okay. It's chapter, it's about the loyalty, the loyalty flywheel. There it is. Uh, it's, it's in part two, chapter five. Uh, let's talk a little bit about loyalty. Um. I don't know what your opinion is, Chef, but my feeling is that most companies and brands treat loyalty in a way to transactional approach, um, where very often the effort has to start from the customer. Like, you know, you have to fly with us 50 times and then as a small reward, we'll fast track you through security. But first you have to fly 50 times with us. Um, in that world, I don't know if you create loyalty towards the brand or if you create, create right. loyalty towards the loyalty program. Exactly. If I, I look at my behavior, quite a bit about this. Yeah. I'm, I'm loyal to the loyalty program, but not to the brand usually because it's transactional. Um, what really creates loyalty is an emotional relationship. So I think most companies need to turn the, the philosophy upside down. Like most companies start with the question, what do we need to do to make our customers more loyal to us? And that usually ends up with some sort of a marketing trick um, to, to try to fool them into loyalty. What if you turn that question around? And what if you say, what do we need to do to show our loyalty to our customers? What if you turn that around? What if you give first and then you hope to get something back? Like we, we have this famous uh, Belgian chocolate brand, Neuhaus, it's called. It's it's a premium chocolate brand. They're yeah, it's much smaller than Godiva, but very premium quality. Um, and they came up with this idea. They said, you know what? Why don't we, as soon as someone becomes a customer of, of ours, so as soon as they buy one single chocolate, we, we make them part of our community and we'll send them free chocolate about 10 times a year. So they send you an email and they say, hey, Shep, we got an, a new product. We want you to try it. We got two pieces of this, of this chocolate waiting for you in one of our stores. If you come by... We'll, we'll give that to you. 
they now have 500,000 people in that program. 10 times a year, they give two chocolates for free. So you can imagine how a lot of companies would, would think about this. They would say, okay, 500,000 times two, that's a million each yeah. time times 10, that's 10 million chocolates. We have to build an entire factory to subsidize that. So, I mean, we're going to go out of business. This is the dumbest idea ever. And they they still implemented it. And what they what they see, of course, is that not everyone picks up the chocolate. Uh, thank God for them. But what they do see is that everyone that goes into a store to picks up those free to pick up those free chocolates, seventy to eighty percent of them buy something while they're in store. The frequency of buying goes up. So the, you know the revenue of Neuhaus has increased dramatically since they started with this program. So what you see is the moment that you have the guts to give something first. People become loyal to you, and it's that, it's like boom, human right human there. interaction. It's human emotion. That kind of philosophy is something that we don't see enough in the business world. And this is an example of giving away chocolate, but like what you and me do, we give a lot of free content away. We give knowledge away for free. If people yep. listen to our podcast, if they read our articles, if they watch our YouTube videos, we share a lot of content. So basically, you don't have to hire us to know the insights True. and the knowledge that we have. You I don't tell have everybody to buy a that. book. Well, everything we, I'm we, thinking we about, free. Everything. everything, you don't have to buy. It's all there at no but charge. But then you see that people are loyal to your ideas and yep. loyal to the things that you share. And then when a book comes out, people are happy to buy one because you shared up front. And I think that mindset is something that, yeah, we should see more in the in the business world. So two things. One, uh, I'm, I'll summarize it by saying uh, before you can get your customers to be loyal to you, you need to show loyalty toward them. Right. And I've written about this a number of times as well, that there's a big difference between loyalty and marketing. And most loyalty programs are marketing programs. Uh, they're not really true loyalty. If you take away the points, the perks, the miles, the, you know, whatever, yeah. <laughs> Will somebody still use your service? Uh, you know, I tell the airlines, take away the free upgrades and and uh, free trips. Are you going to stay with that airline or not? And the problem is, if everybody else has a loyalty program, yeah, you, need you don't. So, yeah. You know, but some some uh, you know, it's amazing. Uh, to your point, some companies have figured it out. They know. Let's. By the way, there's no reason you can't take your top tier customers and still give them something. But show a little love at, at the entry level because I am mm -hmm. a member of several different airline loyalty programs, and I use airlines, that I don't fly a lot. I don't fly a lot on British Air, but I do fly them occasionally when I land in Europe and have to go to. And uh, all I, I know I don't accumulate any points. I'm just a member of the program. And what, what good does it really do me? Um, yeah. You know, not, so, not that much today, I, I assume. Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like it to be more. Uh, but yeah. anyway, we digress. We are basically. Uh, we I could go on it for hours and hours, and I I could truly could. You're exceptional. I you know gushed on you before. We don't need to do it again. But my <laughs> no. final question. I usually ask what one last nugget of wisdom do you want to share with us? But I'm going to ask you something specific about the book. The last big takeaway that you want to share from the book is like, oh my god, that's great. And there's like. 97 more of those kinds of ideas <laughs> entice me. Give me the, big um, yeah, well, maybe the 95, 5% rule is something that I like to work with. 95, 5% rule means that 95% of your customers are like decent and normal and friendly and okay people. But 5% of your customers are 
complete nightmares. Uh, whatever you do, it's not good enough. Or they even try to take advantage of, of some of the good ideas that they have, that you have. You know, it's it's always something with those people. It, every organization has those. The one big problem that we have is that we as humans, we tend to give a lot more weight to negativity than to positivity. So we spend way much more time listening and thinking about the 5%. After a while, you start to think, well, the 5% equals the average customer. At that point, you're starting to make rules, you're starting to make procedures to protect yourself against the 5%. By doing so, you lower the service quality for the 95% normal customers. You're like that teacher that you know punishes the entire classroom because one child is, is hanging out. So it's, it's having this mental flexibility to understand this, to accept this, don't fight it. Just accept that whatever you do, 5% will never be happy. But make rules for the 95%. Just let the 5% take advantage of you. That's no problem. But you make rules for the 95%. If you can make that mental flip, then your customer service levels go up instantly. Right. I love that. Uh, I My my summarization of that is don't punish all your customers for the sins of just a few. That's beautifully said. <laughs> Stephen, it's been great to to talk with you again. Great to see you again. I get to see you. I get Likewise. the privilege of that. Some of the people who are watching the interview and they find like we're, we'll put some of the clips on YouTube, but uh, they get to see your smiling face. This has <laughs> been great. I, I love the book, A Diamond in the Rough, available everywhere Amazon is and other bookstores and booksellers as well. Absolutely. Uh, I urge everybody to get this book. This is not a think about it. This is a must have book. Um, and, uh, by the time this episode goes out, I will have written an article, uh, about my favorite top 10 books that I've read this year, probably this year, about 40 plus books. Uh, plus I've skimmed over probably another 50 of them, but this is at the top of the list in the, uh, top 10 books. And so, uh, they'll see that in my Forbes article. So thank you so much. Thanks for being a friend. Thanks for being amazing. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you. I really appreciate all your support and all your kind words. So oh, it's, it's a pleasure. pleasure. It's a pleasure talking to you, Chef. Thanks for having Thank me. All right, everybody, that wraps it up. Another amazing interview, and we will be back next week, I promise you, with another great interview. And until that time, this is Chef Hyken reminding you to always be amazing. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.